0: this is, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for Unbreakable, I haven't seen Black is that Unbreakable, when you go see the movie, you're not quite sure what it's about, but at the end, you realize it is in fact a superhero movie. And I really like superhero movies. But one of the things that we learn in that movie, and I've actually used this illustration before, is the fact that in every superhero movie, you also need a villain or an enemy of that superhero. As a matter of fact, you really can't define who the enemy is or the superhero is without having the enemy and the superhero. There are some superheroes that that's very evident with. Some would say Batman, sorry, Brendan, might be. One, that you're not quite sure is he really a vigilante villain or is he a hero? And it's not until you see the other villains and enemies that you recognize he's a vigilante hero. So that's what this movie is about. Now, interestingly enough, it just happens to fall at the same time that we're going through this particular verse about enemies. What we've seen here is that God is our shepherd, that he cares for us, that he gives us comfort, that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there to care for us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And then they even says these words. You prepare a temple before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And in some readings of this, and because of the way that Hebrew words are written there, it becomes very evident that what David is saying is, look, enemies, God likes me more than he likes you. He has put me over and above you. I am better cared for than you are. He, he says, I get a table, a feast given to me before all of my enemies. And they've got to sit there and watch. Not only that, I'm special because he's anointed me. So not only do I get good food in front of you, he's going to anoint me with oil and show just how important to him I am. And then not only that, he's going to keep giving to me and giving to me and giving to me so much so that my cup overflows. And if you're like me, you hear that and you think one of two things. The first one being, that seems awfully mean-spirited, David. Aren't you supposed to be compassionate and loving? Shouldn't you not be that way towards your enemies? And on the other side, I think to myself, good on you, David. That's right. Your enemy should see how important you are. Your enemy should know how valuable you are. You it's interesting. Lots of people try to work through that and what it means. And they try to work and determine. Is there a different way to look at those words and what they say? Harold Kushner, in his book, talks about his friend who happens to be another rabbi. Who has taken that imagery of the table with enemies and says in his mind every year he invites all his enemies to a feast. And he has them sit at the table with them so that he can say thank you to them. So he imagines himself at a full table. He has all of his enemies there and he says thank you for not responding to the email that I sent you when I was in crisis. But because it reminds me that people's lives are busy, and sometimes we make promises that we can't keep. And it reminds me of that in my own self. He has those who have heard him in some other way and says, Thank you for reminding me that I set my expectations too high on people. That I assume that they're my Savior when in fact they're not. That there is somebody higher than them that is my Savior. And how I position my own self in that way. In that, he quotes Kell Gibran, who wrote in a meditation called Sand and Thong, said this, I have learned silence from the talkative, tolerance from the intolerant, and kindness from the unkind. So, so what this guy is saying is perhaps we imagine our enemies there so that we can thank them for teaching us how to live differently than they live. Well, that's a nice way to think about it, but maybe not the best way. There's another guy that was writing in a paper that was really dense, talking about sharing meals and building peace. Theoretical and empirical studies on how the act of eating together can serve as a place for ritual to promote reconciliation and peace building. Google that. But in it, he talks about the theory of culinary diplomacy. It's this. It suggests that through eating together, relationships evolve and change, and hostilities will be replaced with more positive behaviors. Food and the practical arrangements surrounding the meal communicates a message, both unintentionally and intentionally, that we're coming together. And he says that's important to be aware of when we talk about diplomacy and peace-building exercises. And so in some ways, we can look at this passage and say to ourselves, okay, so I hear David and what he's saying, look at me, my enemies, look how powerful and big I am. And there's a response in us that says, is that right or is that wrong? I'm not quite sure. And let me tell you, that for David at that place, in that time, that's what he was saying. But that's not the totality of how we understand enemies with Scripture. And so it's important for us to think about how do we see scripture revealed throughout all of this how is god the good shepherd who is the one that is setting the table when he shows himself to be who he completely is in jesus how does he show us how he works within us? well he reminds us in matthew chapter 5 of the greatest sermon ever preached he says you've heard it said Love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. But I say, love your neighbors, and pray for those who persecute you. We're reminded in Romans 5 that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And in Ephesians 2, we're reminded that Jesus on the cross puts to death all hostility that separates us from one another. And so we're reminded that in some sense when God sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies, yes, there's a place that God might be saying, I care for this individual and I'm putting you above your enemies. It could also be a place and an exercise for us to go, what am I learning from these people? But if we look at how Jesus, the full manifestation of God, operates within us, then what we see is that a table set before us is a proposition of hospitality. It's a place for us to move with love and hospitality to those who are around us. So we might have a table set before us, and our inclination is to say, I want this for myself. But if we look at how Christ reveals God to us, then it is one that we say, yes, come and have dinner with me. Come, and let's share a drink together. Come, let's celebrate with one another. You once were my enemy, but now you are no longer that because hostility has been put to death. How amazing that is to think about how God moves in us in that way. I think if we begin to understand it in that way, then we can understand this anointing part. He anoints my head with, with the oil. Very clearly in Scripture, when one is anointed with oil, he is set aside, he is special. We even see that today. Some of you probably remember when the Queen Elizabeth was coronated as queen. She was anointed with oil, set apart in that way. Another way that we sometimes see anointing with oil happen is when people are sick, and we come and we pray and anoint oil over them to bring healing and wholeness, complete. The amazing thing about that anointed word is it's the same derivative of word that we use for Messiah. Jesus, the anointed. And so when we begin to look at this in the totality of Scripture, when we look at it in all of what Scripture tells us of how we deal with enemies, we recognize that what God is doing here, saying through David to us, is I will anoint you with oil and you will become Jesus with skin on for those who are around you, that I've anointed you not to be Messiah, but to carry the name of the Messiah out. So I anoint you so that you're made whole and complete in your relationship with me and with yourself and with all others and with grace. And I give you the ability and the power to do it. That's why you're set aside. And the great thing is it's not just splashed all over us. It is particularized to us. It is given to us as individuals saying, I anoint you with oil to bring you into my house. How amazing it is to think that what Paul, uh, what Jesus is saying to us through David at this point is that you are in me and with me and I've given you the power to make reconciliation because I've already So we move from a place of looking at our enemies as enemies or just an opportunity to learn, but we look at them in a way that we've been anointed by God to love to share with them. And it breaks forth in this idea that our cup overflows. It's been said this, that gratitude, our gratitude is really less about the gifts that are given to us but are more about the love that they are the incarnation of. That our gratitude is not a response to the gift, but it is a response to the love that is being shown through that gift that is given. So we might get something and look at it and go, oh, socks, great. It's summer, I don't need them. But we know that the person who gave us those socks loves us, and that's why they gave them to us. So we should have gratitude, why? Because of their love not because of the gift. The difference is, is the good gift that God gives us is something that we always need. It's something that breaks us free from our bondage. It's something that brings us into a place of wholeness and completeness. Look, one person sees rain, right, as a blessing, while another sees it as a nuisance because their hearts tell their eyes how to interpret what they see. And to the grateful heart, everything is a gift From God. Abraham Maslow has praised the character trait of a fully mature adult, saying, This is what a fully mature adult is: the ability to appreciate again and again, freshly and naively, the basic goods of life with all pleasure, wonder, and even ecstasy. Or Chesterton, who is by far one of my favorite theologians, puts it this way. Children are delighted when Santa puts toys or sweets in their stockings. Shall I not be grateful when he puts in my stockings the gift of two healthy legs? Now that's actually pretty ironic, considering the way that G.K. Chesterton lived his life. It's surprising he didn't have type two diabetes and he lost one of his legs by that time. He really relished eating. Maybe one of the reasons why he's right you see, what that idea of an overflowing cup is, it's the fact that we are so cared for that we can't help but respond with gratitude. We can't help but move to a place of gratefulness. Even though life brings us pain and sorrow, we recognize that our cup overflows. Why? Because he's anointed me with oil and he's taken away my enemies because his love has come and brought me into wholeness. And so I can't help but... And so my lens, the way that I see the world begins to change. And so even though some might see the rain or they might even see the heat today as something to to, to be upset by, in a heart of gratitude I say, I've woke up this morning and I prayed my first prayer by opening my mouth and breathing yet again and saying, thank you for giving me life. Thank you that the sun is shining, that the rotation of the earth is going the way that it is, that I will see friends and family today. Thank you that there will be crops that grow. Thank you that the waves will crash in. Thank you that if I jump in the ocean, I'll cool down. And when I get out, I won't have a chill because it's so hot. Thank you. But there's a reason why we don't move in that place sometimes. One of the reasons why people don't move into the place of gratitude of that place is because they believe that their cups should be overflowing. They have a sense of entitlement. Life seems to be going well for them, or it's been going good. Or maybe life was so hard for them and, and so painful for them, and they just look around and they say, I deserve something better. I deserve this. And so when we move to the uh, identity of having entitlement, then we lose the ability to have gratitude. As I look out over you, I would dare say that's not the majority. Maybe but not the majority of you all. But I would say that this one maybe we'll strike a little bit deeper forward. Another reason why we often don't have the ability to be grateful and have that posture of gratitude is because we stand in a place of self-sufficiency. See, there are people that have trouble feeling grateful, people who cannot bring themselves to utter the world's Thank you because they need to feel like they are self-sufficient. I don't need anything from anybody. I can take care of myself. Our Kirschner says this then. How sad not to need anybody and how mistaken to claim that we don't. How sad not to be able to accept a gift graciously because being on the receiving end of a gift might make us feel weak. You see, when we recognize that it's our cup that is overflowing because of the goodness of God that he is pouring into us, then what we recognize is that I'm in a constant state of need. And so to be able to shout out and say, I need your help to do this, please come and help me do this. It is not a sign of failure, but it is a recognition of what God has done, and it gives us the ability to be grateful. Look, I was moving a refrigerator this week. I can't tell you how many times I've moved a refrigerator in my life. It's been many, many times. I've moved a lot in my life. And I loaded up that refrigerator with a dear friend of mine, and I put it in the back of my van, and I drove it down here. And on the way down here, I thought to myself, I don't want to disturb anyone. I don't want to make a problem for anyone. I can get this refrigerator by myself. (laughs) Listen, that is the old (laughs) lead.
1: I'm the old
0: lead. But that is the old legal. At one point in my life, I carried a sofa up three flights of stairs by myself. And then I proceeded to carry a refrigerator up those same flights. That's not something to be proud of. That's something to say, what was my problem? Why could I not be grateful? Because gratitude springs from the place of saying, I need help. So as I was coming down, I said, dial Andy Shadler. I didn't get a really big guy to help me move the refrigerator. But <laughs> I can say that the thing not in here. <laughs> it's helping in the fresh. Which you might have an opportunity to do that so. And so we got down here and we were able to unload it. So much more easily. So, and all I had to do was admit I can't do this I need And in doing that, guess what? I didn't have the ability to really go, thank you. Thank you for time out of your life. Thank you for coming and doing this. And not only did I receive grace, but he received grace. That's what an overflowing cup looks like. Interestingly enough, when you think about that, and we see this happen throughout Scripture, in particular when we think of the story of the widow who had the vases and no oil, and so we just keep pouring it in, and it poured up and fill all of the vases until they were all full, and then the oil stopped pouring when there was no more vases to fill up? What happens to our heart when we begin to move in a posture of gratitude, when we view the world as a place where our cup overflows, our receptacle of gratitude begins to grow. It gets bigger and bigger because the Lord wants to continue to pour in abundantly into us all that we need and desire and have. And so it begins to grow and grow. But the cool thing is, no matter how big it continues to get, it still continues to overflow. That's how gracious our God is, and how he moves us into that place. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this psalm, and it's been interesting to me. That when we looked at the first part and we saw that God is our shepherd, what we recognize is that knowing that God is our shepherd and we are a sheep of his pasture and he brings us inside still waters, is that he promised rest for us in that. I don't know if you were here, you can go back and listen to it or maybe you remember that. He promises rest for us. And where does rest spring from? It springs from faith. Trusting that our good shepherd is our good shepherd. Last week we talked about your rod and your staff. They comfort me as I walk through any trials, as I walk through any tribulation. And what does that give us? It gives us surety and security. And what does that rest in? Surety and security rest in hope, believing that God has a plan and a future for us, that he knows what we need. And when we come to this place, where we're sitting at a table with our enemies, with the opportunity to show them As Christ showed us love, we see generosity. Which is love. Now, next week, we'll get to how all that takes place. Let me pray for this. Father God, we thank you so much for your we pray that you will take these words, and if they're not your words, that they will burn up and go away. But if they are your words, that they will be deep into our hearts so that you will receive glory and honor, so that we will be transformed so that we can do the works that you have laid out before the foundation of the world. for us. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand up and sing as we